Hello, you're listening to Insight Says, a podcast about mental health and counseling. I'm your host, Kira Deneen. On this episode, I interview Laura Pettifer, a psychiatric nurse practitioner from Insight Counseling, LLC, in Richfield, Connecticut, and we talk about medication's role in treating mental illness. Laura began her career in mental health as a marriage and family therapist prior to becoming a psychiatric nurse practitioner. While working with clients, she became aware of the difficulty connecting with prescribers who take a holistic approach to treatment. Through nursing, Laura found a practical, comprehensive, and compassionate approach that incorporates medical management into the overall treatment of mental health. This coupled with her marriage and family therapy education has given Laura a unique foundation and perspective from which she provides treatment. She's worked in a variety of healthcare settings, including inpatient, outpatient, and community psychiatry. Originally from Missouri, Laura has lived in Paris and has raised two adult daughters. She's most gratified by helping patients discover their own inner resources to redirect their lives in a more positive and fulfilling direction. Thanks so much, Laura, for coming back on the show and joining me. We're going to be talking about medication's role in treating mental illness and so that the listeners can learn more about medications that they may be on, that they may be going on soon, or something of that sort. Um, So we can start out with what are the types of medications used to treat mental health disorders, and maybe you could explain which disorders they specifically treat, kind of matching different types of medications to disorders? Mm -hmm, Sure. So there are some um, big buckets that medications fall under. Uh, One of the largest is the antidepressants, which are the first-line medications for both uh, depressive disorders and anxiety disorders. Which may surprise people. I remember hearing that for the first time and thinking antidepressants, how can that be for anxiety? Those are two different disorders. Yes, and, and it the nomenclature in, for psychiatric medications is most unfortunate, and it gets even more unfortunate as we keep talking. So it doesn't get easy. It doesn't get easier, but, but it is true that the first-line treatments for anxiety are the antidepressants. Um, the, uh, another bucket of medication that people often think of when they think of, is, of anxiety are the benzodiazepines, which have gotten a lot of press because they are... Um, often on board with people who are overdosing on opioids about 30% of the time. So they are an addictive medication, it's a controlled substance, and they have a place in psychiatry, but it's limited. And um, often people uh, have heard of some of them, Xanax, Clonopin, uh, and they come in requesting them, not fully recognizing the risks involved with uh, taking that kind of medication on its own. It really needs to be part of a, they need to be part of a more um, comprehensive treatment plan. Very rarely are they by themselves something that can be utilized in the long term. Because you do have to be careful of it becoming addicted, it sounds like. Exactly, yes. Uh, another... So we have the antidepressants so far. Yes. What's our next one? Um, well, so then there was the benzodiazepine. There's also uh, mood stabilizers, which are used um, for the uh, bipolar disorder to help maintain um, a mood stability. There are the, the one that hopefully will be renamed at some point in the future, but the antipsychotics, which are, as they sound, used for people who are experiencing psychosis, but they're also used for mood stabilization, and they can also be used adjunctively for depression. So there are 
some areas where it kind of blends together, where it sounds like more of a Venn diagram than really three or four, I guess, we've listed separate areas of medications. Yeah, that's a really good way to think of it, I think. Um, and, you know, we the psychiatry also borrows from some other uh, areas of medicine to use medication. Um, sometimes beta blockers are used for people who have performance anxiety, difficulty speaking in front of a group. Um, so sometimes uh, medications that aren't specific to psychiatric conditions are used to um, also help treat. And you've mentioned a couple that people may have heard of, like Xanax. Um, what are a couple more common medications that people may heard of maybe a friend taking them or they have it in their drawer at home? I think the ones that are most often um, heard of are Prozac, Lexapro, Zoloft. And are um, all of those antidepressants? All or? of those are okay. antidepressants and they're a particular category of antidepressant called an SSRI. Um, there are two big buckets of antidepressants and then some kind of outliers. And how prevalent are these medications when we're looking at, say, the general population of how many people are given a prescription to help them out with a mental health disorder or struggle that they're having? I meant to look these these exact numbers up for you. You can give a rough, rough estimate. <laughs> I know that I, I want to say that the number of people who are impacted by anxiety disorders over the course of their life, Americans, is somewhere in the 20% range. Which and is a really large number. It is a large number. and That's and like one out of five people. Yes. So I, I know that that one is very high. Um, I, I'm afraid to mention the number for uh, a, a specific number for uh, depression, but I, it's also um, significant. So I think it is more likely than not that everybody knows somebody who has struggled with a mental illness at some point or another. Yeah, and I think a keyword there is at some point that you may have experienced it maybe during your college years or during a transition in life, or it could be something that's chronic that is um, always being treated and always kind of looking at different skills to help with that. For those that do fall into this category of experiencing anxiety, depression, other mental health disorders and issues, when is it appropriate to seek medication for this treatment? When in someone's life is it kind of like, well, maybe medication would benefit you, that maybe they should come and see you? Well, I, I think depending upon the symptoms, you know, some mental illnesses can have a very quick onset and be uh, quite... Um, debilitating. Um, oftentimes this is the case with bipolar disorder and so you wouldn't necessarily want to um, start with a therapist with with that kind of um, significant symptoms. But if you're struggling in any way, I think starting with a therapist is, in a, re is a reasonable place to start and if you're really experiencing difficulty in functioning um, that is significant, interfering with your ability to lead your life as you typically would, then I think it makes sense to have an evaluation. So if you're having difficulty going, getting up and getting to school and sitting through the class and being in the lecture hall, or if you're having trouble getting up and going to work and dealing with normal work struggles when it's becoming, you know, as you said, debilitating in someone's life that you're missing out on components of it, that that's kind of a sign that it, it could be time to come in and it could be really helpful to get on medication. Uh, again, I think, yes, I think, I think the line between um, 
medication and not medica medication is blurry because many different um, mental struggles can be significantly, imp significantly improved with therapy alone. Um, oftentimes people who have an anxiety disorder might have been anxious since they were a child, but they had things that they did that helped them cope until at some point in life there were either enough stress, stressors that made it, made their current coping skills not enough, not sufficient, and, and they didn't even realize that they'd been struggling with anxiety all of their life. But if they work with a good therapist who can perhaps teach them how to um, some a good uh, cognitive behavioral skills, how to think different thoughts, how to interrupt some thoughts that might be not helpful, they might have enough symptom relief that they don't need a medication. So it's, it's blurry. That's why I said I think it's reasonable to start with a therapist unless the onset of symptoms is really quick and significant or your functionality is really disturbed to a degree that you, you're, you're not able to do what you would typically do on a day-in, day-out basis. Yeah, it's, nothing in mental health is really straightforward. <laughs> and is that's, anything that's kind in of, life straightforward? Right, yeah, that too. We could look at it in that way. And, and so, you know, there is no, oh, when this happens, you go and you get medication. That's, it's not really the case, except for those cases where it's sudden onset. Yes, and... And certainly there is a symptom that is, you know, cannot be ignored and needs to be attended to immediately, and that's suicidal thoughts. And um, even going to seek medication for that, though, if you get to that point, I think you're better served by going to a good um, emergency department where they have a psychiatric uh, evaluator who can help you in the moment. And I think that's a really, really important point to stress in that if you know of anyone that has said anything that hints at that or anything that seems to be that they're looking at doing something drastic like that, I think it's very important to, that's when you get involved quickly and make really um, important actions towards preventing any of that. So, right. And, yeah. I, and I don't think you wait to make an appointment with a person who prescribes medication. You right attend to it right there. Yeah, if it's Friday night, you're going to the ER, you're not waiting for an appointment on Monday morning. Exactly. Definitely. And so for people to understand a little bit better, what is the traditional approach to being prescribed a medication? What have we been doing for years? Um, so the traditional approach, uh, my understanding, is you meet what, well, it, there has been some of it uh, attended to in primary care. I think that's happening less and less. I think um, primary care providers, in, in my experience, are less comfortable managing psychiatric illness and prefer for it to be handled by somebody who has um, a specialty with the medications, but that has been one way. Uh, and then also um, psychiatrists have been uh, a predominant route, and I think in more recent years you're seeing more people like me who are considered mid-level providers who are um, providing medication also. And how long does this process, process typically take to find not only the right drug, but also the right dosage? It's kind of those two aspects that go into having a medication that's working for someone. Unfortunately, it's not generally a fast thing. Um, and there are a couple of reasons why. 
it takes time for psychiatric medications to work in the body and also you want to be using the least amount of medication um, needed to treat the uh, particular illness and you can't know what that is right away you kind of um, evolve into that so you make an educated guess starting with the medication on based on what they're telling you in an intake and from there you're going to see if that medication is working but again it's not checking in the next day or sometimes even later that week it takes is it sometimes a few weeks for certain medications to really show if they're going to be effective it is it okay. can take a few weeks and you know, this is where, like for anxiety, for severe anxiety, this is where the benzodiazepines really are helpful for somebody who's got a lot of anxiety and needs to be put on a, a daily medication, but they want relief now. So that's a good use of them in my view. And it can be short term, a couple of weeks until somebody can start feeling an effect of another medication that doesn't have the same risks involved with it. So a medication like that, is that something that someone could take that if they struggle with anxiety, but maybe not very chronic to the level of every day, but more maybe situational, is that something that they could take on a day where they're having anxiety and maybe not the rest of the days that week and kind of pick and choose? Or yeah. do you need to be on it consistently? Well, I think it depends on the degree of anxiety. And so there are a few people that I work with who have very occasional anxiety that benefit from the use of a benzodiazepine, um, but not many. So it's more of a rare case, usually you're looking at medication that's taken on a daily basis. Right, because usually if anxiety is such that it doesn't just appear one day and then go away and come back, it might become uncontrollable on one day, but it's usually there every other day too. There's somewhat of a baseline usually. Yes, so if you treat the baseline, then you can often um, reduce or eliminate the uncontrollable, unmanageable. When you're getting to a panic attack level, exactly. escalated levels of anxiety. So then you wouldn't need the long-term use of the benzodiazepine. So let's say we have a family and um, someone is coming in and their brother has anxiety and they've been on a medication that's working for the brother. Is this something you'd look at as saying, oh, maybe it would work for you too in terms of they're sharing around 50% of the same DNA if they're full siblings? Um, is that something that's helpful in prescribing medication? It, it is a practice that is often employed in uh, in doing the history, if you know that a family member has the same disorder and has responded positively to a particular medication, then it can be a starting point. I certainly take that into account. I, my understanding is that there isn't a lot of research to support that approach, um, but it could be just because there, the research hasn't been done. So if you're looking at maybe prescribing, say, out of two medications and their family member's been on one of them, then it could be a reason to pick one, but you wouldn't necessarily pick it if other indicators are pushing away from that. A little added bonus. Beautiful synopsis, yes. Okay, great. And so going along with kind of the genetic ties, how does genetic testing differ from this method of looking at pharmacogenomics and companies like GeneSight that are looking at genetics and seeing how the medications may play a role? Well, I think the pharmaco... Uh, genomic testing is exciting and there are a lot of uh, future possibilities for it that are going to that we can't yet know currently I think it has a place 
um, but it isn't uh, it isn't a panacea. So what it can do is it can tell us if a particular person um, is going to perhaps uh, need more of a medication or less of a medication. So you're talking about dosage there. Yes, it might help with dosing or it might be a predictor of whether or not somebody is going to experience side effects or not. However, it can't speak for, it, it's a predictor. It can't say definitively. And often, um, as the results are displayed and provided to patients, um, the patients can get confused and think that it can be um, a... Like almost a diagnostic test. Yes. When it's more similar to a screening it if is anything. more similar to a screening, and I think um, it can be helpful if, if, you, if, for instance, I'm struggling to find a particular medication that works for somebody, or if someone is having um, really strange uh, response to medications or something atypical is occurring, then I think it is a great additional tool, but I don't use it prior to starting treatment because I I, I don't think the uh, evidence is there to support it being helpful. As a matter of fact, the FDA has put out a, um, a warning about uh, these tests and, and how uh, they are being interpreted. So it's, they have, it's like the benzodiazepines. They have a place, but it isn't, in my view, at the beginning of treatment, it, unless you're one of a few um, medications, and there are six of them that I'm aware of that are um, metabolized by a certain pathway in the liver, and those, um, if you're going to be starting on one of those, it can be helpful to do it in advance. So it's a, it's a tool in the tool belt, but that tool is not necessarily best for everything. Exactly. If you're looking at a nail, a screwdriver is not really going to help you out too much. Exactly. And the accuracy of these tests and just being able to actually use them hopefully will be better in the future because right now it's it's very new field and I think we need to learn a lot more about it before we start using this in terms of like the gold standard of prescribing medications and everything but hopefully next five ten years we're looking at something that's going to be way more useful and more accurate. Well, I, that would be great. and Because it would really eliminate the trial and error process of medications. And I know how frustrating, I, I, I think I have a small portion of an understanding of how frustrating it might be for people who are starting a medication because I feel the frustration too when I can't provide um, an, an immediate relief for somebody, uh, but I know I'm not actually physically going through it. So it will be a great benefit to have um, a more direct trajectory to the answer. Definitely. And I think I'm trying to remember the numbers now. You probably know of just how long it takes someone to find the right medication of for some reason, six months is in my head. I don't know if that's quite right. I'm hoping it's less than that. You know, um, I would, that's probably the outlier in my experience. Okay, that's good. Um, and I can't speak to statistically what the average person's struggle is to get to medication. But, but how about what you've seen in your patients? It may take, what, what takes time is 
when, when you start a medication, the first thing is, are, are the side effects going to be tolerable? Because there is no medication that doesn't have side effects. Even an aspirin has a side effect. Unfortunately, so, yeah. Um, it, is that particular person going to be able to tolerate whatever those side effects are? And they may or may not be obvious or apparent. Um, so that takes a little bit of time. And then once we know, once I know that a medication is tolerated, then there is the titration of it to a dosage that seems to provide, um, you know, it's a balance between getting relief from symptoms and side effects. Those are always kind of the two things that are being balanced. And what are the types of side effects that you're mentioning that people maybe should be aware of before starting a medication? It's going to differ between the medications, obviously. Right. Um, you know, in, in psychiatry, most of the medications over time have a weight gain associated with them, even the antidepressants, even though in the short term um, studies will show that they don't gain weight. People often anecdotally gain weight on antidepressants. So that is a biggie. Um, sometimes you can have uh, a loss of energy or um, in the antipsychotics there are more serious metabolic side effects of increasing um, the sugar in your blood, making it more you more susceptible to diabetes. Um, more susceptible to hyperlipidemia, high cholesterol. Um, so those sorts of things have to be monitored. Lithium can be particularly hard on the kidneys over time. So, and it has what's called a narrow therapeutic window. So you have to um, manage it pretty closely. And it can also impact the thyroid negatively. So these are things to be aware of before going on medication. So you're making an informed decision on whether this medication is right. and being able to reevaluate as you go of, you know, is this working for me a few weeks, a few months down the line? Mm -hmm, exactly. And how does prescriptions differ if you're prescribing, say, to, you know, an adolescent or a child compared to, say, someone um, that is pregnant that has to consider that? How does your approach change when you have cases like these? Well, I don't work with, with children, um, but they, they, they metabolize at a different rate than adults do, so it does change the dosing, and they're smaller. Um, but adolescents can generally be treated as adults can, um, typically are similar in they're body size. They're close to an adult too. weight. Mm -hmm. uh, but you do have to treat pregnant women um, very differently because some of the medications can be damaging to a developing fetus. And it's good to check on to see if that is on a teratogen list, to see if that's going to have negative consequences. And as you know, we were talking a little bit before the show of seeing, weighing out, is it worth it to keep someone on the medication even if they're pregnant? Um, because the side effects of that might be better than the consequences of not being on the medication. Right, I, th I think that's the, um the general consensus today that, again, it's not clear-cut. Most of the time there are some clear teratogenic medications that must be avoided. Um, but mostly um, it is, again, a balance of what would it be like for mom if she weren't on the medication because having mom be depressed through her entire 
pregnancy um, takes a toll on a fetus also, and um, that's difficult to quanti quantify. Um, one of the big biggest resources I use that I love, and I think any woman who is on a psychiatric medication that is thinking about becoming pregnant should first talk to her provider before becoming pregnant. If and you can, yeah. If you can, yes, if at all possible. And also there's a great uh, website called Mother to Baby that is done by UConn, which is where I get a ton of information, and there's nurses that you can call and speak yeah, to. Yeah, there's a genetic counselor that works there, too, that yeah. I know. Oh, yeah. Um, so. Yeah, so it's, it's a great resource. Terrific. Um, yeah, and not only for, um, you know, the general population, but I think also for therapists and other healthcare providers. And one of the, when I do work with a, a pregnant woman, I encourage her to sign up and report her experiences of being pregnant because that's where we get information because nobody wants to uh, sign up and be a research um, guinea pig on how yeah, pregnancy has its own challenges you <laughs> yes. don't want to throw that in there so but you your information and your experience can be useful uh for people going forward so getting um, set up with that registry is a great thing another question i wanted to ask you before we close out the show is if someone's looking to stop a medication that we've talked about sometimes being on medication for a long time can have negative consequences so um say they were depressed um, and chronically, but they're starting to pull out of it or they think they can handle going off of Zoloft for another antidepressant. Why is it important for people not to just stop taking a cold turkey? I've heard that it's, it's much better to be weaning someone off medication and lowering the dosage. What are, what's the idea behind that? Well, there are a couple of things, Kara. Some of the medications have um, pretty distinct uh, discontinuation syndromes or is what it's called where you can experience um, some pretty uh, uncomfortable side effects from going off of it. It's not a physiological dependence that you develop but uh, your body notices when you're stopping. Um, this tends to happen with some of the medications that have shorter half-lives um, so Effexor is one of those that is known to be difficult to come off of. So you definitely want to do a taper with something like that to make it more comfortable. I think one of the other reasons is because um, one of the uh, things that happens when you have an anxiety disorder or depressive disorder is that you feel so good on the medication that you think that the problem is solved and you don't need it anymore. And so to stop it quickly um, could put you back, uh, could set you back uh, significantly if that's the case. And uh, there are times when people can wean off of medications and do so beautifully, and it's less harsh to do it slowly. It's easier on the body, and I think it gives you more of a sense of what it's going to be like not taking the medication instead of one day being on it and one day not. That if someone starts kind of having a re-emerging of certain symptoms, they could say, hold on, I might need to reevaluate waning off. Maybe I'll stay at this dosage for X amount of more months or a year or so. Precisely. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I've learned so much about different medications um, and really good to know to have this idea going into looking at taking medications if you're on a medication. Um, so really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you, Kira. It was a lot of fun to talk to you. For more information and resources about medications role in treating mental illness and other info, head over to insightcounselingllc.com. Again, that's insightcounselingllc.com.
www.thepodcastmagazine.com, which is also in our show notes of this episode. You can request an appointment or join a group by emailing info at insightcounselinglc.com. And also check us out on social media. On Instagram, we're at insightsaysthis. On Twitter, we're at insightsays, name of the show. And on Facebook, we're at Insight Counseling CT. And all of those are available on our website. Again, insightcounselinglc.com. Thanks for listening and join us next time to learn and discover more about mental health.